You're listening to the free, abridged edition of the Energy Transition Show. American coal. Nuclear energy. Natural gas. Hydro. Solar power. Wind turbines. We're becoming a monumental exporter of natural gas. This boom in the United States is not a bubble that's going away. The oil's still there. I'd rather pump it from another country and save ours, and then when the rest of the world runs out, hey, guess what? We can still turn on our lights. We've run into a problem where we have constraints, where there are limits now. The new phase we're going into related to the exhaustion of these resources, there's no replacement. This is a one-shot affair, and we're unprepared for it. Really, we do not have very much more time to get a handle on this problem. It's better to get to a renewable future, a sustainable future, sooner rather than later. Get there before we do the environmental damage, not after. For May 30th, 2018, this is the Energy Transition Show with Chris Nelder. As the costs of wind, solar, and storage continue to fall, while efficiency measures and new demand-side technologies continue to reduce energy demand below forecast and undercut the case for conventional generators, those who own conventional generators are increasingly becoming nervous about their futures and seeking new ways to protect their legacy assets, as well as their position as rent-seekers in the market. We've discussed this topic from a few angles already, such as our discussion with Gavin Bade about generator survival strategies in episode 41, our conversation with Ari Pesco about FERC's authority and legal challenges to PURPA in episode 43, and our review with Thad Moore in episode 62 about the disastrous effects of advanced cost recovery. But this year has seen a rash of new attempts by various utilities and wholesale market operators to change market rules or simply offer new subsidies in order to keep economically failing coal and nuclear plants in business. And those attempts have often run afoul of the legal authorities granted to the federal, state, and regional entities that govern wholesale electricity markets. And it's not always clear who really has the authority in some cases, or even how disputes over that authority should be resolved. Essentially, these debates usually come down to a question of who's in charge of what, and the ongoing project of energy transition promises to make these questions increasingly common as we try to grapple with the basic problem of how to retire unwanted, dirty, or old generators and replace them with newer, cleaner sources of electricity. This challenge has broad implications and ramifications for how the electric grid of the future will operate and who will own it. So in this episode, we're going to take a deep dive into the intersections between federal authority, wholesale markets, and state policies, explore some of the legal questions therein, and try to understand what they suggest about the process of energy transition and the pathways for unlocking new ways of using energy and designing electricity markets. And yes, this episode definitely deserves its geek rating of 10. Our guide through this legal thicket is Michael Panfill, a senior attorney and director of federal energy policy with the Environmental Defense Fund, where he engages in federal litigation and policy efforts across the country to advocate for an environmentally friendly and economically efficient electricity sector. Michael's work focuses on reducing emissions throughout the United States by advocating for the deployment of smarter technology, improved market operations, and sustainable practices, and it's a privilege to have him on the show. Then in the news segment, we'll talk about an amazingly bold gambit by Excel Energy to implement advanced cost recovery in Minnesota, even as the disaster it has caused in the South continues to unfold. And we'll cover four recent stories about the PJM, which are highly relevant to this episode. But first, our conversation with Michael Panfill, recorded April 7th, 2018. So let's bring him into the conversation now. Welcome, Michael, to the Energy Transition Show. Thank you. Excited to be here. 
So today we're going to talk about what's happening to wholesale electricity markets and the legal issues that are coming up as a consequence. And I feel like we're in a rare moment here because, you know, in the past, uh, wholesale electricity market was potentially the most boring phrase one could possibly utter in English. But now it seems that everything is suddenly in flux. And Wholesale electricity markets are actually the playing field on which energy transition is really unfolding. We have old coal and nuclear plants getting undercut and shoved off the grid by cheaper natural gas and renewables. We have the owners of these old plants trying every trick in the book to keep them open. The merchant generation business is dying a remarkably rapid death, and the plant owners are trying to now get back under the protection of regulated markets because they can't actually compete anymore. In fact, we're retiring so many big thermal plants so quickly that I think one can legitimately ask if we're sure we're going to have enough adequate capacity in the future. And yet, we do. We have more than enough capacity still. As demand continues to flatline or fall and prices are low, which is normally not an indicator that you've got a supply problem. But as fraught as all this is, it's what energy transition looks like, isn't it? Yeah, I would certainly agree. Energy transition, it's new interests, new paradigms, new technologies. And the change we're seeing and continuing to see, it's massive and it's fundamental. And we really are moving, I think, from a unidirectional system to a multidirectional one where energy and information, they don't just flow one way now. We're moving from monopolistic structures to more competition, more access. We're moving from a system that really just wanted to get bigger to one that now needs to account for other things like environmental impact. And of course, that's going to be bumpy. It's so fundamentally and incredibly important that, of course, there are going to be sort of questions along the way. Yeah. You know, it's interesting to me how the grid was constantly growing. The demand was constantly growing. We did always need to put up new generation capacity every year for pretty much the whole history of the electricity system up until about a decade ago. And it seems like our markets and our market rules have not quite caught up to the fact that that did end a decade ago. And now we're dealing with, you know, utility forecasts that still say we need to put up more generation when in fact we don't. And we seem to be at an uncomfortable place in terms of actually retiring capacity. Mm -hmm. I think that's exactly right. And if you go back, because the fundamental law here sort of guides a lot of the sector and sort of two interesting things here are one you know that was written not just for sort of the expectation of growth and demand year over year it was also written with a grid that was going to itself expand physically year over year we wanted and we held as sort of intrinsic good you know not just cost saving but also energy access so we wanted this machine to really sprawl out across the United States, and that's largely been achieved. And so yeah. then I think the question is really around sort of the regulatory framework that has cropped up around that. You know, is that doing sort of the job that we need it to do? Well, why don't we start by describing briefly the Federal Power Act or the FPA, because that is the basis of so many of the legal questions here, and it's increasingly under fire. So can you briefly explain what it is, why it came about, and then maybe we can talk about how what we're seeing today is a consequence of it. Sure. Yeah, happy to. A lot of different parts there to sort of untangle. But, you know, the FPA itself, Federal Power Act, originally passed in 1935, created the modern FERC, Federal Energy Regulatory Commission. And although there have been amendments over the years, most recently in 2005, 
the core of the FPA is, is largely intact and traceable back to 1935. And, you know, quite a few different things it does, but two particularly important things are, one, it provides the rules of the road for FERC and federal energy regulation more broadly, and two, it describes what that road looks like for FERC in contrast to the road for particularly states. Now, rules of the road, if it was just a sentence, I would say, keep the lights on at affordable prices through fair means, which is really three different elements there keep the lights on, reliability. We want to make sure that the grid that we have, when I go to turn on a light, that I can expect there to be light. Right. At affordable prices, this is the just and reasonableness mandate. We don't just want power. We want to make sure that power is affordable. It's a public good. It's something that everyone has access to. What was the context in 1935? Like, Why was this act made in the first place? Yeah, so the structure of the act is both sort of reflective of the time, but also sort of explains why it's written as it is. And 1935, if we trace it back just a few years before, 1907 was both the same year that we saw ComEd, and it was also the first year that a state legislature enacted electricity regulation. And so what we saw really over a period of not very many years was really state and local level regulation and that being something that then led to this federal regulation and the reason why is because the grid itself starts as a very local very state level physical machine at the very earliest point it was generation you know one generation source tied through one distribution line to one load and the system is you know, essentially a web because we want to build out larger balancing areas and that would grow. And so state level regulation back in 1907 made a lot more sense than federal regulation because it's a state level product. Right. This went along pretty well until 1927, which is the year of a Supreme Court case. This is Public Utility Commissioner Rhode Island v. Attleboro, which is one of the probably most important court cases in electricity law, certainly top five, perhaps. And this case, it started around 1917, just to give you sort of a time scale here, and concluded in 1927. In 1917, an electric company, Narragansett, which is a Rhode Island company, agreed to sell power to another company, Attleboro, which is a Massachusetts company. And the contract was for, I think, 20 years agreed to sell it at a certain price and would be carried across state lines, Rhode Island, Massachusetts. And about halfway into the contract or so, Narragansett decided they wanted to increase rates. They went to the PUC, the Rhode Island PUC. The PUC investigated both companies and after review, adopted the new rates, which Attleboro quite reasonably appealed. What the court found was that in adopting the rate, the PUC had exceeded its jurisdiction that because that was fundamentally an interstate transaction, it was outside the bounds of what any one particular state could do. Now, hmm. what the court also found, however, was there is somebody that could do this. That would be the federal government, but that entity doesn't exist. It's up to Congress if they want to create it. That power is vested in Congress. But until then, what became known as the Adelberg Gap exists. 
So essentially a place where state entities are barred from exercising regulatory authority and federal entities were very conspicuously absent. So that was very much an energy transition itself. We were seeing a rapidly expanding grid, both because of the energy access piece, but also because of the cost savings piece. And regulation hadn't caught up with the energy transition. And it wasn't until 1935 with Congress stepping in with the passage of the FPA that that gap was essentially closed. Wow, fascinating. You know, I've never heard the origin story of the FPA like that before. (laughs) I'm glad I asked. That's super interesting. So it was evident then from the very beginning that there would be problems with states and their own regulatory bodies working together without some sort of a federal oversight body. Yeah, I think, you know, particularly the issue before the sector then was there's this rapid transition. The rapid transition is one where you see regulation sort of responding to a relatively new product. And that's sensible. You wouldn't put regulation before the product. We can't regulate something that doesn't exist yet. And so regulation, of course, needs some time to catch up. But once it does, then I think it does start to unlock a lot of the benefit here. And the sort of gap closing exercise that occurred when Congress passed sort of the FPA and gave FERC this authority over federal also preserved that state authority. And that's why what we really have is this two lane system of governance where if it's interstate, if it's at wholesale, if it's transmission, then it's FERC, it's federal, it's their domain, their jurisdiction. And if it's distribution, if it's retail, if it's generation siting, things like that, that's the state level. That's the PUC that acts. Hmm. Okay. And so now fast forward almost 100 years and we've got a whole nother set of state versus federal issues that we're contending over. And it seems like those jurisdictional questions are very much at the heart of a lot of these questions that we're now facing. Mm-hmm. Okay, so with that foundation laid down, let's get into some of the legal issues. We covered some of them in depth, actually, with Gavin Bate of Utility Dive back in episode 41, where we discussed generator survival strategies. But that conversation was, in fact, about a year ago, so maybe it wouldn't hurt to refresh briefly. I framed that discussion around three major strategies that generators are using to try to stay alive. First, there are the wholesale market reform strategies where generators are essentially looking for new ways to get paid within market constructs. Then there are the around market reforms where they're seeking new ways to get paid outside of any market construct. And then the third major strategy, I think, is re-regulation, where they simply give up on trying to compete, give up on the whole idea of you know deregulation that was kind of put in place in the 90s. And try to return to the fully regulated utility model where they're guaranteed a profit. So I think a lot of the new tensions that we're seeing now between state and federal entities are in one way or another rooted in one of these three generator survival strategies. So let's take one, for instance, in the New England ISO or ISONE and PJM, the two main wholesale markets in the Northeast, generators have been seeking additional capacity payments, payments made just to keep plants around and not shut them down just in case we need them, even though we have more than ample capacity on the grids of all these independent system operators and RTOs with reserve margins that are actually way above target. So we really should be shutting some generators down now. We've got excess reserve margin. But no, their owners are seeking new payments. Capacity prices remain strong in recent ISO auctions, indicating that we're trying to keep these plants around. 
And I suppose the main tension point here is that the states want to protect their ratepayers and keep costs as low as possible, so maybe they'd be more inclined to shut some of these plants down. And they do have the right to determine what kind of generators they're going to have in their territories, as you explained a minute ago. But a multi-state ISO, or RTO, which is regulated by FERC, can effectively thwart their intentions by granting certain generators higher payments. So am I on the right track here? Yeah, I think that's exactly right. And just stepping back for a second, this is, I think, emblematic of this sort of tension between federal entities and state entities. And so, you know, previously, perhaps the tension around Attleboro and that particular transition was one of a gap. You know, I think that this is a really good example of an overlap of both a state and a federal entity sort of claiming jurisdictional authority in a way that actually is relatively reasonable. They both can say, I have a reason to want to exert jurisdictional authority here. And when that occurs, when there's an overlap like this, that's generally going to lead to either increased litigation or some type of settlement. And Mm -hmm. the phrase accommodate state public policy, it's actually like very recent history in the sense that it comes out of a FERC technical conference on state public policy. And just to give sort of a sense of the level of interest here, I remember being at that conference last year, and I think there must have been five or six overflow rooms at FERC, just to give you a sense of how many individuals in the industry were obviously interested to hear what stakeholders, what FERC itself sort of thought around this overlap. Hmm. Now, the phrase accommodate state public policy the idea that groups can come together and reach a settlement alternative over a litigation alternative, I think that's a fine idea. I think the concern has been that in times of uncertainty, and certainly that could describe this particular moment in time better than decades past, perhaps, it can be co-opted and used for self-interested purposes by entrenched interests acting on that interest, or certainly by entrenched interests looking at how things have been done in the past and therefore should be applied to the future. Now, the PJM proposal and the ISO New England proposal specifically, they're a bit different, both sort of in the scope and size and likely effect, but they share similarities and they both fundamentally would change capacity markets in both of these, PJM and ISO New England. And they would do that by turning a single auction into a two-tier auction, where one of those two tiers would filter out state public policies. They would remove those state public policy supported resources and run one part of the market like that. And by doing that, I think that there are a few concerns folks have. One of them, and probably one of the most obvious is, if you're removing resources in any part of the market, what you're doing is limiting what supply looks like. And that's probably going to raise prices, less supply that's allowed into the market will necessarily result, assuming demand is held constant, in higher prices for that supply. And that's certainly what's expected in both the ISO New England and PJM proposal. The other pieces, though, and I think here you get into some of the interesting legal questions, are around what that turns the ISO into. Now, the phrase picking state public policies and muting them or undermining them or filtering them out involves an ISO necessarily deciding what's a state-supported resource. Right. In doing that, 
you ask an ISO to essentially be a policymaker. It's a policy choice. It's a judgment call. And ISOs have been, PGM in particular, has been very upfront and frank about this, that it's a judgment call. Now, a judgment call is not what an economic regulator probably should be doing, and certainly not you know, a quasi-regulator, which is what PJM and ISO New England are. They're nonprofits that are regulated by FERC. The other piece here that I think is important is perhaps accommodate safe public policy has merit as something that can be worked around and can sort of unite folks on both sort of the state side and the federal side. That becomes very different when you're essentially undermining those state public policies. And we need to be really careful that we're not taking a good idea and then in practice actually doing quite the opposite of it. We hope you've enjoyed this free sample of the Energy Transition Show. Our full episodes cover much more and are generally at least an hour long. In addition to two full new episodes each month, subscribers can also view interactive transcripts of our interviews and explore our extensive show notes with links to all the research resources and news items for each episode. Our subscription podcast works in all podcast apps and players, including iTunes, and is downloadable. The first 33 episodes of the Energy Transition Show were free and always will be. So if you want to see what our full shows contain, feel free to check those out. Then we hope you'll become a member and support our show. To become a subscriber and enjoy our full offerings, just point your browser to energytransitionshow.com and join. Annual subscriptions are just $60 a year. Monthly subscriptions and per-episode purchases are also available. In order to bring you the most unfiltered, unbiased, honest information we can produce, we have elected not to take any sponsors or advertisers. 100% of the revenue that makes the Energy Transition Show possible comes from listener subscriptions. And let me offer a special welcome to the students and educators out there who have joined our new subscribers. A half dozen university classes are now using the show as coursework, with more joining all the time, so welcome. And if you're a student or an educator who would like to inquire about our unbeatable educational discount, just shoot me an email at chris at energytransitionshow.com and we'll work something out for you. So join us today and support our ad-free, hormone-free, organic, handcrafted, artisanal podcast featuring high-quality, cutting-edge interviews and news about the most important story of our time, energy transition. And now a quick look at some recent news items. Item 1. In an astonishing move for anyone who has listened to episode 62 on how advanced cost recovery produced the spectacular failures of nuclear and clean coal plants in the U.S. and torched over $40 billion in ratepayer money for no ratepayer benefit whatsoever. In March, the Minnesota legislature introduced bills to give advanced cost recovery to Excel Energy for about $1.4 billion in improvements needed at two of its nuclear plants to keep them running through 2034. This is a textbook play to circumvent both markets and regulators, and for that reason, Governor Mark Dayton has indicated that he won't sign the bill. These end runs to the legislature to try to give special interests what they want violates the whole purpose of the Public Utilities Commission, the governor said. But the sheer chutzpah of Excel even asking the legislature for subsidies under the very same authority that has wasted billions of dollars in high-profile flameouts in several southern states is just breathtaking, and it shows the extent that these utilities are now willing to go to to save their assets, not to mention their utter disregard for the opinions of consumers and regulators who are charged with with protecting them. Item two. The rest of the news items for this episode all concern recent discussions about the PJM Interconnection, the regional transmission operator, or RTO, that coordinates wholesale power markets. Well, that's it for this episode of the Energy Transition Show. Thanks for listening. 
You can find our show archive and give us feedback and suggestions at energytransitionshow.com and follow us on Twitter at Transition Show. Our theme music was by Mike Sugar and Mark Burnfield, who you can find online at mikesugarmusic.com. The Energy Transition Show is a production of the XE Network.